If you're visiting, we welcome you to hear a dangerous message in a safe place. So thank you very much for coming, and I hope the next hour is not scary, but encouraging to everybody here. A couple of thoughts. If you want something you never had, I'm sorry, you've got to do something you have refused to do and that you've never done. You will never, ever get a miracle in a comfort zone. You will get beige, odorless, colorless, tasteless, sterile, but you will not get life in a comfort zone. I wish I could push people out. If you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. And I know, I know I live in a safety-conscious world, but if you are a follower of Jesus, you need to erase that word, safe. I'm going to talk about that this morning. I know you always hear safety first, but in the kingdom of God, it's safety last. You'll catch my drift in a moment. You know, I want to talk about what's one of the main reasons we don't experience more of God's power and more of the presence of Jesus, and why He doesn't seem very real to so many who are followers of Christ. Author Gary Hogan talks about being a 10-year-old boy going hiking with his father and his brother on Mount Rainier. Now, they set out on the trail, and as they did, to begin to climb, there's a large sign that gives you warnings. How would I know? I climbed it. 14,300 feet, a 70-pound back, minus 20 below, howling wind. And yes, I'd never do it again. I couldn't walk for three days when I got through, but I did it. You know, I faced it. And so this kid sees the sign, and it warns you about all the terrible things that can happen on beautiful Mount Rainier. You can die, and people do every year. It scared him to death, he said, but he couldn't admit that. So he told his brother and his father that he thought the most boring thing in the world would be to hike on Mount Rainier. He'd rather just stay in the visitor center, and he did. At first, he thought he had made the right choice. It was warm. He had lots of exhibits to look at, but pretty soon he was bored and the air was stale. And when his dad and brother came back later that night, they were filled with all kinds of stories of adventure and excitement, and he felt he had really missed out on a real cool day. I think that story, true story, is a great metaphor to the church in America, which has often become nothing more than a visitor center. It's safe. It's warm. It's comfortable. You can look at all the exhibits, but you're missing the power of Jesus. You're missing the presence of Jesus and the excitement of following this man because we're playing it safe. So let me ask you a question this morning to ponder. Where is it you're playing safe in life? Because everybody plays it safe in life somewhere. I've seen guys, buff, strong, six-pack, dive headfirst 400 feet on a bungee cord in Africa, but they would never ask a girl out on a date. Play it safe. See, maybe it's relationally you're playing it safe. You're not opening up. You're not honest about what you feel or what you need, and it has a, an impact on your marriage or relationships, and you feel disconnected. 
Maybe you're playing it safe in your career or in your faith. Maybe you're not responding to those promptings or nudgings in your heart that come from Jesus to do something or say something, but you don't want to because it's kind of risky. That's why we've been encouraging you all year, tell your story. You do not need to go to seminary. You do not need to know a lot of theology. You don't have to know anything but what you know only, your story. This is what happened to me. This is where I was. This is who I was. This is why I'm here. That's the most powerful thing you have in your arsenal is your story, because nobody else can tell it. It's your story. It didn't happen to anybody else, and you're authentic, and it's real, and people love to hear your story. They, they sincerely do. They want to hear yours. Maybe you're playing it financially safe. You're not giving to see the kingdom of God go forward. I hear people say all the time, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. And I want to say, hold on, Sparky, wait a minute. Are you kidding me? Look at the Bible. Now, I know the emblem of, uh, you don't want to hear me do this again, but I get sick looking at a fish emblem on the back of a car. Some greasy, slime-sucking fish to be a symbol of Christianity when it ought to be a nuclear radiation hazard sign on there like saying, following Jesus can be very harmful to your life. If you got straight hair, it'll perm it, and if you got permed hair, it'll straighten it. It's exciting, but it's dangerous. Safe. The prophets were beaten, thrown in jail, eaten by lions, and when that didn't happen, God asked them to do some pretty weird stuff. Ezekiel had to eat a scroll. Isaiah had to preach naked by God's command. Whoa! Please, Lord, don't speak. No, don't say anything. Maybe when I was 35, but not now. No. You know, the book of Hebrews says many of the heroes were tortured. Some faced floggings, chains of imprisonment. Some were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They were burned as torches in Nero's yard. Other than that, Miss Lincoln, how was the play? This has been terrible. I haven't had one crowd from Saturday to today understand. Miss Lincoln was married to Abraham Lincoln. He was shot and assassinated in Ford Theater watching a play. Uh, I've heard of a slow crowd, but this is really… You just don't know your history very well, okay? Following Jesus is safe? You must be kidding. But it's the most exciting place to be, it's the most meaningful place to be, and it's the most rewarding place to be, but it's absolutely not safe. Why? Because the God who came to us in Jesus is not a safe God. Now there are times He does protect us, of course. But the idea somehow that God's job and the meaning of being a Christian is that God's going to keep me financially, emotionally, and physically safe has weighed more to do with the American culture than anything to do with the Bible or Jesus who came to do a rescue mission on the unsafe planet Earth. The American Trinity has become comfort, pleasure, and success. And one of our big idols is safety. We are the most seat-belted, airbagged, bike-helmeted, knee-pad-wearing, hyper-insured, sunscreen-lathering, massively medicated, protected, and inoculated generation in world history. And all it's done is make us more afraid. Be careful, Billy. Look both ways. Watch out for strangers. Uh, get a desk near the door. 
and all we do, and how about a mama saying to her kid, okay, Billy, get out there and kick some enemy bottom. Get out there, take a risk, get on a limb, do something, live big, Billy, have a good day in school. No, watch out, be careful, look out, watch out, be careful. And then you go to church, look out, be careful, watch out, watch out. I'm just, just, you'll never do anything but listen to somebody else who's done it. That's all you'll do. You'll read their book, you'll go hear them speak, you'll listen to them, but you won't have anything to say. It'll be like a dial tone. Uh, I'm serious. If you look at the great explorers, the great innovations, the great breakthroughs in technology, I, I came out of a World War II Air Force family and was a pilot, and, and I, I love speed. I don't want no sailboat. I want a rocket on the back. I want to go Mach 3. I, I, I want my hair on fire in a boat out there. I'm just talking about me, okay? I, I, I'm, it's electrifying. It's exciting. It's like, wow, whoopee when it's over. And the idol of safety robs you of breakthroughs in so many rich areas of life. Your marriage, your career, relationships, your finances, the kingdom of God, it's got risk. Faith is spelled R-I-S-K. Otherwise, you wouldn't need to trust God. God doesn't ask you to do what you're capable of doing, for crying out loud. Why does He put you in places that are above your potential where you don't have the resources, you don't have the physical prowess or the mental capacity to do it because He's already defeated death, hell, and the grave. He's not sweating anything. So He doesn't mind putting you there because He's there. He's with you. There's no reason. He's not intimidated by the enemy or anybody else. And yet we walk around like the camp Girl Scouts sucking our thumb, getting counseling 40 years, we are not a psychiatric ward. We're the army of God. We're the church of the living Jesus Christ who triumphed over death, hell, and the grave. Well, I just want to go deep in the Word. Get off your overcellulite rear end and get out and do something. Help somebody. Overfed, overnourished, overcounseled, and underachieve. But anybody that's done anything to make life better, has had to face risk. Every new car invention, every new aviation invention has got risk in it. And you want a no-risk life? Gag me. Not a chance that's going to happen. So we're not talking about taking risks for risk's sake, right? But safety wrecks our faith. Now for a starter, it's an illusion. You can minimize risk. There's nothing unwise about that all you want to, but total safety is never an option. I recently read an article on freak accidents that have happened in the last 100 years. At the turn of the century in London, England, a vat, a giant vat of beer exploded, and a 25-foot wall of beer went out in the street and drowned eight people in beer. What a way to go! In night, that's a true story. In 1910 in Boston, a giant vat of molasses exploded, killing 21 people, apparently 21 very slow people. <laughs> molasses. We can hide in our gated suburbs all we want, but no matter how much we buckle up, cover up, or button up, life is inherent with risk. There are financial risk. You can save, you can invest, you can do everything right. 
then the economy goes south. There are social risks. If you follow Jesus, occasionally He might ask you to do something that other people think is a bit weird or strange. There are emotional risks. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is facing emotional risks. He's invested heavily in this church in Corinth, and all they do is criticize and complain. They don't like his sermons. They say he's too harsh. They say he's not decisive enough. Some say he isn't good-looking enough to be their pastor. And Paul writes this letter to defend himself. He said, I've been shipwrecked, beaten, thrown in jail. I've been in danger from river, in danger from bandits, in danger in the country, in danger at sea. And he says, besides all this, I face the daily pressure of all my concern for the churches. I think that's kind of funny. I think he's saying, you know, folks, I've been in prison, I've been tortured, I've been shipwrecked, and worse than that is being your pastor. No such thing as complete safety. And the second problem with safety not only is it an illusion, it shrinks our life. It wrecks our life. It shrinks it. People get so small-minded and petty, and they complain because there are too many people walking on their street. You ever watch the nightly news? There's no ice in my coat. God forbid. How will you make it? One man called the cops in our city because there was a car parked on his street. People want to make sure there aren't too many children living on their street. Where are they going to play? This was on our news. A man from our church lives in a beautiful gated community, put up a small greenhouse in his fenced backyard in a gated community, and was threatened to be sued by the homeowners for having an unseen greenhouse in the backyard. And I'm thinking, you need a life, people. You need a big, adventurous, get a triple talk espresso, something. This is so pitiful. What kind of a prison is that where you're so freaked out by the smallest, petty little things? And that's what happens when we live for safety and comfort. If we play it safe, it wrecks our life. Second, it shrinks our life. And if you play it safe emotionally and not honest and you don't open with people, your marriage is going to suffer. Your relationships are going to suffer. If you play it safe by living the typical middle-class script, you'll get a good job, three cars, two and a half kids, statistics say. Those are good things, but not nearly enough. You'll miss the adventure of a big life with Jesus. Death by suburb. Safety is not an option. Safety shrinks our lives, and safety shrinks God. He becomes our celestial seatbelt, meant to keep bad things from happening to me, rather than the God who loves like a hurricane, whose passion sent Him from heaven where it's very safe to earth in the person of Jesus to die for our sin and to conquer death by rising from the grave. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, and He invites us to join Him in this rescue mission to unsafe planet earth. And I'm sorry, but the criteria most Christians look for, whether something's God's will, is it safe? Because if it's not safe, if it's not comfortable, if it's not warm and fuzzy, God wouldn't want me to do that, would He? Maybe you ought to read your Bible. Yeah, yeah, He would. And here's the beef. God believes in life after birth, and He wants us to live life to the fullest. So if we're going to defeat fear, how do we do it? Let me give you three quick, easy answers. Number one, act on Jesus' most frequent promise. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, 
but whoever will lose their life for me will save it. That's a profound thing in the Bible. In all of our efforts to be safe and to be comfortable, we're actually making ourselves miserable. But if we understand the security that Jesus gives us, man, it liberates you. It frees you up. He conquered death, hell, and He rose from the grave, which means even if we're killed, we're just going to be raised to new life like He was. That's why the first 300 years of Christianity, when a plague hit Rome, everybody would leave the city, including doctors, except Christians, who would give care to the sick. And even if they died, and many did, at least they died doing something important and memorable. And even if they did die, they knew they would be raised to new life like Jesus. He had come back from the dead. He spent 40 years with over 500 people saying, touch me, know that it's me. You don't even have to be afraid of the Apollophyra. You don't have to be afraid of being killed. You can be bold and courageous like that young doctor that just got back with Ebola virus who gave himself through Samaritan's Purse as a doctor on a missions trip to help people suffering from that incurable disease, but was unafraid. And when they had one shot of a vial of blood taken from a survivor to get the immune system pumped up, he refused it and gave it to the female doctor who was also sick as he was. He wasn't afraid to die. He doesn't want to die, but he's not afraid to die. And Jesus removes that fear even of death itself from us. We need a little—I'd like to change our billboard from Summit to Dirty Harry Christian Center. <laughs> I really would. Go ahead. Make my day. I dare you. Serious. I say, you can't stop people like that because they're not afraid of anything. They're fearless. Even today around the world, when Christians are killed for their faith, you know what happens to conversions to Christianity? You don't hear about it. It goes up. People want that kind of freedom and boldness that the resurrection gives people. I remember in Acts it says, those that have changed the world have come here also. The people were terrified. They'd heard all about them. They weren't afraid to be tortured. They weren't afraid to be fed to lions. Certainly nobody was praying for it, and certainly they prayed they'd be delivered from it. But they went in boldly if God didn't intervene and had no fear. I met a guy in Seattle who worked as a cargo handler at the airport, and he told me the story that one time some friends of his were unloading the section of the plane where the pets are kept, and they found that one of the dogs was dead. They got in a panic and decided to make something up. They told the, they told the owner of this dog in bag time, your dog was misrouted to Phoenix. Come back tomorrow and we'll give you your dog. Meanwhile, they tried to figure out what can we do. So one of them went to the pound to find a dog that looked like the dead dog. And they found one that was similar. They brought it back and gave it to the guy. And the guy said, that's not my dog. And they said, yes, it is. He just got jet lag. He looks a little different. <laughs> the, guy, the guy said, I know that's not my dog. And they said, well, how do you know? He said, because my dog was dead. I was shipping him back to be buried. Yeah. Things don't normally come back to life, but Jesus did, which means He conquered our biggest enemy and biggest fear. Now we have nothing to fear, even from death itself. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? You hadn't got any because Jesus already defeated you. I'm not afraid of you, which means we can throw our lives away in the security that Jesus gives us and live for the bigger life. I sometimes wonder, you'll pardon me while I transgress here, if the church, Christians, 
didn't miss a great opportunity in the early 80s when AIDS first appeared. What if, like the early church for 300 years, we had cared first and cared most for the AIDS patients? Some did, not many. Today, more are involved. We helped financially with thousands of dollars, our own AIDS center. But the church decided to play it safe, safe physically because of fear of an incurable disease, but also safe theologically. Christians didn't want to be seen as approving lifestyles associated with that disease. But here's the thing, just like Jesus, you can care for someone without approving behavior. Anybody got kids? My kids don't do what daddy would want them to do all the time. I don't approve of their behavior at times growing up, but I love them unconditionally. Jesus was a friend of sinners. He didn't condone bad behavior, but He loved the people and ministered to them. And I've told you for years, I don't care if you're a lap dancing strip pole uh, escort or you're uh, a drug dealing cartel person, you're in the best place in the world right here. I don't condone bad behavior, but God loves you and you've got a shot at the Holy Spirit touching your heart and changing your life forever. Why wouldn't I want you to be there? I wouldn't want you to be a leader, but I'd want you to be there and to know I got a lot of bad people I love. You. There's not a good person in this room. That's a fact. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. So the early Christians didn't approve of the Roman orgies and the gladiator games, but they threw themselves in and cared for them anyway. And as a result, listen to this, Christianity grew 40% per decade for 300 years, the fastest growing religion on earth. What if we'd have cared first and cared most? I wonder if maybe today, instead of being viewed as a mean, nasty, judgmental, issue-oriented, politically motivated, hypocritical, no-fun people, I could keep going. Jesus and His followers could be seen as brave, adventurous people who live counter to culture. If we had lost our lives, we might have found them, but we chose not to. We chose to save them and then to preach issues instead of good news. What if students in here decided occasionally to see the lone girl of the lo- that's not the pretty one, not the cheerleader, and you just walked away from the cool gang to include them once in a while? That's, it. that's socially risky. Do it racially. This church, if you'll look around, on stage, on our board, on our staff, and in its makeup, we got Asians. African-American, Puerto Rican, right there. Uh, no, no, I was, Benny was here a while ago. Sorry, he had your seat, Joshua. <laughs> Filipino, Caucasian, we got, we've got kind of what life is made up about. And I love that. But I can tell you one thing, we're still racially segregated in this city. And if African-American people come here because I happen to be a Caucasian cracker, they face ridicule. Can't believe you go into that white church. Well, I can't believe you go into that dead black church. What's the difference? You know, white dead, black dead, Asian dead is still dead. I'm a white guy, but I'm going where there's life. I don't care what your color is. You got life. I feel got, you, got, you got vision. I, w- I want to be part of that. I don't hang around you because of color or race. But Percy, it's true. 
And my friends in here will tell me that that's the issue. You mean to tell me you're going to choose the church based on how somebody voted instead of the Jesus who loved the whole world and gave himself for it? You need to get bigger. You just need to get bigger. This is a tiny, puny, small-minded, thinking, little, uh, bigoted kind of a city. You're either Democrat or you're Tea Party or Republican. You're either white, you're either black, and it stays that way. And it's rare that anybody would dare to break that deal. So along came Rick. You think I give a fig, Newton, what they think. I could care less what they think. And you want a little life? Live it by what people think. You need to live it by what God thinks and celebrate that and live for a great adventure. Well, sorry for preaching, but I do have a license. Secondly, you want to overcome fear? Get weak so God can get stronger. In this passage from 2 Corinthians, Paul is defending himself, but in an odd way. He doesn't brag about his accomplishments or the churches he started. He brags about his weaknesses. He includes his thorn in the flesh, which God doesn't remove, whatever that might have been. And there are theological opinions on that that abound. But whatever it was, God didn't take it away. God says, look, whatever you're going through, whatever it may be, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul says, therefore then, I delight in weakness, for when I am weak, God is strong. What he means by that is that when you get out on the edge, when you get out of the boat and walk on the water, when you take a risk to follow Jesus, and He's the only thing that can possibly save you or hold you up, that's when you see His power kick in the most, and you see a miracle. The more we take risk, not stupid risk, calculated risk from Scripture and from God's prompting, the weaker we get the stronger God gets, and the more we see His power, while the play it safe crowd sits around wondering why they don't experience God more. And all they worry about is what time do we get out? Is it warm? Is it cold? Is the music loud? Why is the smoke machine going up there? Why aren't they wearing robes? Why aren't there more crosses on the wall in here? Why don't you go home? Go get a colonoscopy or something? Love your life and you find it? Get weak so God can get strong. And number three, here's the last one. Just want more out of life. Want more out of life. Do you really want your tombstone to read, well, at least nothing bad happened? <laughs> what? That's it? Are we robbing our children of their sense of adventure by keeping them safe all the time? Are we giving them the message that our grand ambition for their life is that nothing bad ever happens? Then don't leave home. Don't do anything. Don't try anything. Don't break out of the herd. Don't walk on the water. And they go looking for adventure somewhere else and usually in the wrong place. Of course we parents pray, Lord, keep my kids safe. Of course we do. But do you pray, Lord, give them enough hurts to keep them human? and give them enough challenge to make them cling to you for the rest of their lives. Sometimes preachers force people, try to scare them into becoming Christians, and they'll say, if you died tonight, do you know you'd go to heaven? I think here's what Jesus would say. Fred, what if you don't die tonight? Are you going to live tomorrow? When are you ever going to live if you don't die? We usually have our kids pray, if I should die before I wake. What if you wake before you die and suddenly get a life? 
I think that excites the Lord. Be honest. Maybe it's taking an emotional risk, you know? Open up, get honest about a need. We've got a marriage seminar Friday and Saturday, $25, Jim and Karen Evans. Every year we have this to help build and enrich marriages, give them a tune-up, little things, it's important. Deal with it. Get off your bottom, make the effort to build into your marriage. Cindy and I will celebrate this year, God willing, if I don't kill myself doing something dangerous, 40 years of marriage. Some of you have been 50, but not many go the distance. Not many. And I tell you, that's something to celebrate, just surviving, and children and grandchildren. You, so many of you know what I'm talking about. You say, yeah, that's right. Absolutely. And I'm just simply saying, do something about it. Maybe it's a financial risk. Give more than you think you can handle. Watch God provide. Step out of your comfort zone. Maybe it's a career risk, which might not be getting a different job. It might be saying, how can I use my job to be part of Jesus' rescue mission in my office or at school? Maybe it's to serve someone or others in another way. There are people in their mid-70s who are now retired mentoring at-risk children in school. They have no father in a home. They have a family that is an absolute mess. And these senior mentors help them in school, teaching them, giving them commitment, teaching them perseverance and character. And the attitude of these seniors is, hey, I'm not dead yet, so I'm not done. I'm going to keep taking risks to serve Jesus and others, and I won't stop till I die. I'm not going to let fear get in my way. I want a life like that, even if it's not safe, even if it's not comfortable, because it's bigger, it's better, it's deeper, and it's richer. What's the point of living your whole life safe and die of boredom in the end? I've said to our new member class many times, I'm a risk taker, but I'd at least like my wife to be able to say, if she were to walk up to my tombstone, at least the sucker tried. At least he tried. What's that thing we say? I'd rather have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. Some of you don't even have the guts to ask a girl on a date or to find out somebody who knows her so they could set up a little meeting over coffee in the coffee shop. You're pitiful. Absolutely pitiful. I'm telling you, well, I had a relationship, and he dropped me, and, and, and I'm hurt. Go home. Put on some makeup. Put that dress about one inch, two inches above that knee. <laughs> knock off a few pounds. Make yourself great white bait. And I, I'm thinking, what, what, you think Christians aren't attracted to each other? Are you nuts? Am I looking for the, the, the little naked angel going around your head? No, no. We're attracted first, the people. Of course we are. Values play a part in that. We share our faith. But instead of talking about the dude that left you, how about the one you hadn't gotten yet that's still swimming in here single? I'm thinking if I'm a single guy, I'm going to be on the prowl like a great white shark in here. Holy cow. You won't hear this in church, will you? No, no you won't. I'm going to ask for the date. I'm going to ask. All they can say is, no, you got no going for you now. Ask. Jesus said, you have not because you ask not. Ask her. She may be wondering, anybody ever going to ask me out? Well, ask her. <laughs> you know it's true. You know it's true, right? Shoot, I'm some, when my husband left me, well, 
that might be the best thing that ever happened to you. There's another guy that's been hurt somewhere or still single looking for the right woman, and baby, you're it. Drop, drop a couple of pounds, go ahead and get that makeover, get a nip and a tuck, and live bold. Might be the greatest second half you ever had in your life. Absolutely so. Thank you. Sit around, suck my thumb, moping over somebody that left me. Dude, you don't know what you just lost. I'm going to make you regret the day you ever left me. Really? Surely you've learned something out of that, right? This week, do something that's not safe for Jesus. Just beat the scared inside of you. If you don't beat that scared, that scared will beat you up for the rest of your life. And the point is that Jesus' life, His death, and His resurrection means He gives us the power to beat the scared. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but power, love, and a well-disciplined mind. Don't give away your brain. God says, hey, I'm putting you together. God does not give you fear. So how will you beat the scared inside of you this week? Isaiah 43 says, fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, I am thy God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. God said, don't be afraid. I got you back. Or as the old fighter pilot said, I got you six. Don't worry. I got you covered. Now, before I close, I want you to watch a two-minute clip from the movie Moneyball. And you ladies will like it because Brad Pitt's in it. Watch this quick clip. Come with me to the video room. I want to show you something. No, man, I'm not for film right now. Come on, seriously. Come on, Billy, come on. The Visalia Oaks and our 240-pound catcher, Jeremy Brown, who, as you know, is scared to run to second base. This was in the game six weeks ago. This guy's going to start him off with a fastball. Jeremy's going to take him to deep center. Here's what's really interesting, because Jeremy's going to do what he never does. He's going to go for it. He's going to round first, and he's going to go for it. Okay? This is all of Jeremy's nightmares coming to life. Oh, they're laughing at him. And Jeremy's about to find out why. Jeremy's about to realize that the ball went 60 feet over the fence. He hit a home run and didn't even realize it. be romantic about baseball. It's a metaphor. I know it's a metaphor. This guy has never gone for it. His whole career in baseball, 
He's never gone for second. And he's crouched holding first base, doesn't realize he's hit a home run. And the metaphor for the church is the same thing. When Jesus rose from the dead, he hit a home run. Not even death can stop us, so we have nothing to lose. We don't have to cling to first base in fear, trying to stay safe. He's hit a home run. You can go for it. You can beat the scared inside of you and live larger with freedom and great joy. And the point in life is not to arrive at death in a safely preserved body, but to skid in broadside, completely used up, shouting, thank you, Jesus. Whoa, what a ride. People ask me, are you going to be an organ donor? Not a chance. Is it a good thing? Of course it's a good thing. Why? Because there ain't going to be nothing left in the guts of this 70-year-old man worth having. I am going to burn up every cell, every piece of muscle, sinew, tissue, everything. And when I die, there ain't nothing you even want out of the body. It'll be thoroughly used. That's in me since I was 12 years old. And you worried about getting to death safe. No, thank you. Here's what Jesus didn't say. Dear children, I have come that you might have safety and have it abundantly. No, no. He came to give us a big, bold, messy life where we see God's power unleashed, and we walk in His authority, and we live in His victory, and we shine with His joy. So, for God's sake, for your sake, for your children's sake, don't live in the visitor center. Beat the scared. Live large. Live bold skidding broadside into home plate. Thank you, Jesus. Woo! What a ride. Can you say amen? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for a life of risk, but great adventure. For more information on Rick Godwin and product available, visit SummitSA.com and click on Bookstore.